Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Spending on government-wide acquisition contracts reached an all-time high in fiscal 2023. Now there's growing concerns that small businesses are missing out. Well, to help, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy is going to push agencies to make changes aimed at improving how much of small businesses participate on all of these vehicles. More now from Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And Jason, there's some, I guess, not formal rulemaking, but a memo out, huh? There's a memo that will turn into formal rulemaking. I think that was what was uh, Office of Federal Procurement Policy made very clear in this memo. But the memo really is telling agencies, hey, ahead of these changes into the federal acquisition regulation, here are things you can do today that we think will make a big difference. One of them is more on-ramps. Hey, when you when you make an award or a bunch of awards under these multiple award contracts, these government-wide acquisition contracts, and you know, Tom, every GWAC is a MAC, but every MAC is a GWAC. It's one of my favorite <laughs> sayings I like to say when it comes to acquisition. But all of them act very similarly, and there's a lot of concern about the small business participation. So you can have on-ramps now, one suggestion they're making. Another one, and this is a big one, is applying what they call the rule of two to these uh, multiple award contracts, meaning if two or more businesses are, small businesses are qualified, maybe it should be set aside to a small business if you can find that they are, are going to be able to, to do the work. And then the third one, uh, big changes, and I think this is interesting as well, is, Tom, we've talked about this over the years, is big push from uh, this administration the last two administrations, really, to use something called best-in-class contracts. And a lot of these GWACs and multiple award government-wide acquisition-type contracts are considered best in class. There's 38 of them in all. And what OFPP is saying, listen, look at these first, but if they, you see that they're being detrimental in some way to small firms, uh, maybe you shouldn't use them. Maybe you should do a, more of a full and open type of competition. So big changes that the OFPP and, and the Biden administration is really pushing as part of this bigger uh, effort to increase the supplier base, the diversity of the supplier base of small businesses, and to really push more contracts and more money towards small businesses. And that rule of two, then, is really coming in big time, sounds like. That, that is a, one of the biggest changes that I've heard from several people. I know uh, you're talking to Larry Allen, a federal procurement expert, later on in your show, and, and he is really kind of up in arms about what this really means because it's unclear. Now, should everything be set aside for small businesses under this rule of two? Should it not be set aside? And I think there's some clarification that is much needed from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, and I think maybe potentially will come out as they push through this rulemaking process. Now, Tom, to be clear, the rule of two is something that that we've been around for quite some time, you know, and, and one thing that we can tag back to is the Veterans Affairs Department got into a little bit of hot water several years ago about the rule of two because they were not applying it in the right way to their contracting. A lot of agencies do say, okay, well, if we can find two or more small businesses that are qualified, they can do the work, we should set it aside. However, that leaves a lot of subjectivity. And what I think what OFPP is trying is maybe narrowing some of that subjectivity because they want more agencies to consider small businesses as they're doing contracting. But but this is a big deal. Now, to be clear, another thing that I think we need to be clear about is this rule of two does not, and let me be clear about this, Tom, does not apply to GSA schedules, which saw a huge increase over the last few years in terms of the use by agencies. Yeah, why not the schedules? Because the IDIQs and those GWACs were supposed to be simplifying things, but now it sounds like it's the same rules no matter what type of vehicle you've got. 
there's a whole piece in part that I'm not going to try to try to explain because I'm no procurement expert, Tom, but it really goes back to how the FAR is written and some of the regulations and, and the way the schedules were, were created. Uh, a lot of the changes that we've seen in acquisition really don't apply to the federal schedules because they are supposed to be easier to use, you know, quicker to get the, the, the need met. So I think what we're seeing is, is – these GWACs and, and multiple award contracts outside of the schedules really have been the ones that have been taking up a lot of the small business concerns uh, versus the schedules, which routinely do 38% of all contract awards to uh, small businesses, spend more money with small businesses than really most other vehicles combined. So I think that's the other piece of this is that a lot of what the schedules is doing uh, is already small business friendly. Right. So that's why OFPP focused on multiple award contracts because of that very issue. And I think I think also they, they focused on this because of what they've seen over the past few years and the amount of dollars going to these best in class contracts. Uh, let me give you an example, Tom. Uh, HireGov, which is a market intelligence firm, they looked at the 2023 numbers and they said almost 55.8% of all awards went through some contract vehicle like GSA's Oasis, NASA's Soup 5. Uh, both of them saw records, by the way. Oasis saw more than $13 billion. NASA's Soup 5 saw more than $10 billion in sales, respectively. I just spoke with Stephanie Schott over at GSA. The GSA schedules, again, does not apply rule of two, but it's still part of this discussion. Saw $46 billion in sales in 2023. That's it's almost $5 billion more than in 2022. And Tom, one last set of numbers I'll give you. Uh, looking at best-in-class contracts, again, there's 38 of them in all. Dell Tech, another market research firm, found that about $54 billion, or 12.7% of all procurement, went through this, what they call BICS. And that was up from $37.6 billion in 2019. So as you can tell, Tom, a lot of money is going through these contracts. And at the same time, the number of small businesses are dropping. SBA found in May that since 2010, they've seen about a 40% decrease in the number of small businesses receiving prime contracts. Now, again, whether it's uh, multiple work contracts or, or one-offs, the number has decreased. And I think Deltec even found 1,800 fewer small business contractors in 2022 as compared to 2020. So uh, the, these drops are all creating these concerns about why OFPP, the Biden administration, is really pushing agencies to do, to do more and make a lot of these changes. Right. Okay. And uh, so just to reiterate, then, this is a memo from OFPP to agency buyers to use the rule of two and so on to do whatever they can to get more small business. But there is formal rulemaking coming on this? There is. One of the things that OFPP does say in the memo is that we will put out FAR cases of proposed rules, give people in, in industry a chance to comment before we make this, quote unquote, permanent. And I think that's a good thing. As Larry Allen, I'm sure, told you, Tom, that he has a lot of concerns about how this was done and, and, and what this means in terms of the major changes that this could lead to in the way agencies use multiple work contracts, use government-wide acquisition contracts. And so I think that this that will be coming down the road probably later this year as, again, proposed rules, and then eventually final rules. Right. And all of this, of course, when there's no appropriations and agencies aren't starting anything new. But, you know, we'll see when that happens. We still have a few more weeks, but Congress is not in session for the entire time. And there's, I guess the other question here is this rule or this proposed change or this memo could have different effects on different segments. For example, if you're selling professional services, agencies can much more easily tailor the requirements, let's say, 
so that you can get the contractor you want as an agency. Whereas if you're buying the next 27 PCs or something to put somewhere, that's a different story, commodity hardware. I think you're right in, in many ways, and I think that's why there is kind of that out that OFPP gives agencies in this memo saying, hey, you, yes, use the rule of two, but it's got to be, you know, makes sense. It's got to be make sure that you are meeting your goals of your mission, right? We're not just going to make an award to a small business if they can't meet the goals or if there's some other challenges that come with making those awards. So I, I think, you know, they want agencies to do market research. They want those that market research to include small firms uh, and specifically small firms potentially not even on multiple award contracts. And if they decide to use this specific vehicle, they should share that documentation with the agency small business specialist and give that person time to review and respond to a decision not to set it aside. So again, there's, there's a broad concept across is what what does this mean for small businesses when it, when you apply the rule of two and, and yes tom i think getting back to your point of whether or not this how this affects different segments of the industry of course it does but i think for a lot uh, they've seen such a decrease in the number of small businesses and not just in it not just in construction not just in architecture and engineering but across the board that that, that there's a lot of concern uh, both on Capitol Hill even and on and from the administration about what the small business supplier base looks like. It's always interesting. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important, so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. 
Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing. 
to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys 
having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.